When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. I've got Calvin Betton with me. You may have heard of him before. Uh, he is uh, going to look back at Monday's play at Wimbledon. Uh, we hope to be joined by George later, but I think that looks unlikely at this stage, given he is, um, well, as he puts it, currently homeless. Uh, I don't think that's quite true, but he does seem to be hopping between houses, so uh, we'll just let him get on with that. Uh, we're going to look back at Monday when Novak Djokovic was completing his match against Hubert Hurkacz. Carlos Alcaraz was in action as well in what looked like it might be the match of the tournament against Matteo Berrettini. Uh, we had Ons Jabur as well, Daniil Medvedev, Runa against Dimitrov. We'll look back at all of those if we can. Um, the first match today on centre was Elena Rabakina against Beatrice Haddad Meyer. Very disappointingly, what looked like might be a test for um, Haddad Meyer. For Rabakina, I should say, Haddad Meyer retired after just five games with what looked like a back problem. Um, Calvin, I know you've kind of already said that you think Elena Rabakina is going to win the whole thing here. Um, just specifically on her form, you know, we were concerned that she didn't have any matches coming in, that she'd been ill. She, I feel like she still hasn't really been tested, and I was hoping that Haddad Meyer would be a kind of good barometer, and we still don't really know where she's at. Um, yeah, it didn't worry me too much. The, I mean, I was the only thing I thought was that if she got through the first two matches, then she'd, she'd win it. Mm. Uh, because she's never really been a player who plays on form. She just mm. occasionally has these tournaments where she just cleans up. Yeah, and then she has some some bad ones in between. So it's not like she's somebody who's week in week out. She's mm-hmm. she's performing. She's just you know it's the way she plays. She hits the ball huge. She goes mm-hmm. after everything, and if she's in good good shape that week, then she'll she'll win, mm-hmm. um, or she'll make the final. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm not too worried about her not being tested as such because I think that she plays all the matches on her terms anyway. The mm-hmm. only person who could you, you know the only person who could challenge her is um, I think is. Savalenka, mm. um, who basically plays the same way and historically tends to edge her out. Although I think Rabakina won the won the last match that they played. I was just trying to think that because obviously they played the Australian Open final. And we all know how that went. 
I'm just trying to think if they've played since then. Oh, yeah, they, they played, played in, in Indian, final, Indian Wells. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and Rebecca beat her 7-6-6-4, 24-point tiebreak in the middle of that. So it was close. But, yeah, I, I think that'll be... I mean, that's slated to be the semi-final on Thursday. Um, and I think it will be a, a pretty interesting match because... Well, maybe interesting is the wrong word. As uh, I think, as you said before, Calvin... They both play quite similarly. They both basically just whack the crap out of it. And on grass in particular, that, that actually might not be the most interesting match ever, albeit the result will be interesting. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, yeah. I actually found the Aussie Open final really good. Um, or the, certainly the, the, the last half of it was really yeah, yeah. good. Um, and the standard was pretty high, I thought. Um, yeah. You know, they, they, they do play similar. It's not really a contrast of styles, but... Yeah, I thought that that match was good. So, hmm. um, what I don't get, like the one thing, I'm just a bit miffed about is why Wimbledon is now onto this where they're splitting the the quarterfinals. Like, I'm just not a fan of it. Like, so, so what was it previously? Well, the, all the women's quarters would have been today. Uh, oh previously. no, it would have been on. So yeah, so the fourth round used to be all on Monday. And then what? They used to put all the women's quarters on the Tuesday, and then all the yeah. men's quarters on the Wednesday. The Wednesday, is that right? yeah, yeah. That's what they. That's what they've mm. historically done. I don't. I, I think it's unfair that um, who plays tomorrow? Is it Sabalenka plays tomorrow? Uh, yeah, uh, on Wednesday. So and then she has to play a semi-final on Thursday. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I mean, both both Sabalenka and Rybakina play their quarterfinals on Wednesday. So they're both going to have the same amount of time to recover between their quarterfinal and semi-final, but yes, I can see that that's not ideal for them. But like, like it's not an uneven playing field. Like they have the same schedule. No, it's not. I'm not. It's not that that bothers me. I just thought Wimbledon used to be the cleanest of the slams in scheduling. That you mm. knew you knew what you were getting on each day, and you know all the matches were played. This was this was men's quarters. This was women's quarters. And I don't get why we've changed it, although I don't get a lot of what's happened with Wimbledon's <laughs> scheduling this year, if I'm honest. Uh, well, yeah, as you said uh, on our previous podcast, it's a crap tournament, I think, were your exact words. Um, yeah. I, th- I don't I think... think as well. I mean, I've got to be honest, I don't think Jamie Baker's doing a particularly good job as um, tournament director. You know, he has the control over all of this stuff. Hmm. And it, it's not been a very good one this year. And I think, you know, when, when Jamie Baker was given the role, um, he was given it without any real particular experience and just seemed to be given it because he was a former player who didn't have any strong opinions on anything. And this is what tends to happen, I think. I mean, look, the Wimbledon is... And, and look, people disagree on this and people I really respect have opinions on this that go both sides of the fence. I don't necessarily think you have to know tennis inside out to do certain jobs in tennis. I think tournament director probably isn't one of them. That probably is a job where you need to know tennis. But you also need certain experiences and certain skills that don't just involve playing tennis tournaments so that you know how to run them. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, you have much more experience of exactly what Jamie Baker's decisions, you know, do to the tournament. But if we look at the, the thing that's been in the press this week, which is Novak Djokovic on Monday, the day we're talking about, had to come back having only played two sets of his match against Hubert Hurkacz, even though there were no rain delays on Sunday. There were just two matches before his, and they didn't get started till 10 to 9, and they had to stop at, well, 25 to 11. 
Um, Novak was asked, it was the first question he was asked in his press conference after he beat Herkacz in four sets. Um, they said, do you think Wimbledon should reconsider the 1.30pm start and centre court? He said, I think so. I agree with that. Obviously, curfew is probably something that's much more difficult to change. He's right. They, they can't change that because of the community and the residential area. I think the matches could be pushed at least to start at 12. I think it would make a difference. Um, Calvin, does that seem reasonable? Yeah, I think it's entirely reasonable. And, you know, they're talking about it being for TV. You know, there was some ridiculous comment last week that when somebody questioned, or this week maybe, when somebody questioned the scheduling and the lady from the All England Club said something like, well, you know, I think I think the TV numbers have justified our decisions. Yeah. That's not what it's about. Mm. And if you want to do that, it's dead simple, James. Put a not before 6pm start on the last match. Yeah. Say we're going to go at 12 o'clock or 12.30 or, you know, one of those, and say we're going to, the last match is not before 6pm, then you're still going to get the primetime match. That's... You're going to get it, no match is going five hours. Hmm. That's, actually, that's, actually, that's actually a really good point, because then, yeah, you would get both sides of it. And actually, I think centre court crowds, if they watch two matches from 12 till 4.30, and then they say, well, the next match doesn't start for an hour and a half, that would be great. Yeah. Go and have a wander around the site, go and have your afternoon tea, have your strawberries, have a beer, chill out for a bit. And then come back refreshed and watch the the later match. Yeah. Um, yeah. Crikey, that's a good idea, Calvin. It'll never. Occasionally, that, that, I have. <laughs> it'll never catch on. Um, I mean, so I've I've we talked about this a lot, and, and the lady from the All England Club is Sally Bolton, who's the chief exec, and she was up on Monday talking to us, huddled around a picnic bench on the site at Wimbledon, which is kind of classic Wimbledon, really. Um, and yeah, she she did say the TV figures speak for themselves. The BBC obviously love having. You know, matches on during prime time, albeit that a lot often they're going well past anyone's bedtime, but that appears to be neither here nor there. Um, the, the reason they start at one thirty, the reasons that I've been given by, by sources in the All England Club who I've spoken to off the record, and then Sally has kind of talked around that a little bit on the record, is firstly a sort of site management issue. Uh, where they don't want 40,000 people all turning up at the same time and all basically trying to move around the site at the same time, which I'm afraid doesn't wash with me because everyone, you know, you know, they say, they also say, well, we want people to get the whole experience of Wimbledon when they buy a centre court ticket. They also want to turn up and watch the outside courts. It's like, well, I'm sorry. So you're saying you don't start centre because you don't want everyone turning up at the same time, but then you acknowledge that everyone does turn up at the same time anyway. So I'm afraid that that doesn't really wash for me. The other reason, which is hard to argue with, but it maybe says something about priorities, is basically when you buy a hospitality ticket, you don't want to have your lunch at quarter past 11. You want to turn up and have your lunch at 12, 12.30, finish your lunch, and then wander out and watch and, and be in your seat for the first ball. Um, and, you know, Sally kind of was very impassioned about making sure the seats are full when players come out. I'm, I, again, Calvin, I I don't know where you, what you think, but I'm not convinced that that says a lot about Wimbledon's priorities. Well, I think it says a lot about Wimbledon's priorities, actually. I mean, I think we're running tournaments for the wrong reasons there, but I've said many times that Wimbledon's a corporate event with a bit of sport going on, hmm. and that but that's that sort of thing basically justifies it, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the middle, the the other point you made about that people who've got centre court tickets want to watch a bit of the outside. The outside matches start at eleven o'clock. Yeah. So what's the problem there? And also, hardly anyone just sits on centre court and watches the whole whole of the three matches. Well, they get yeah, exactly. out and they, they watch a bit of match. You know, they they go outside, watch a bit, go and get a bit of lunch. It's just overthinking it. It's and again, it's this exceptionalism that Wimbledon holds of itself 
um, that it just thinks it's different from any other tournament, which, mm. you know, it kind of is in a way, but stuff like this isn't the good reasons why it's different from anything else. It's It's been a mess. It really has been a mess. The number of matches that they've had to carry on from one tournament to, from one day to another yeah. is just absolutely pathetic. Um, I mean, that that kind of thing, go back five years, that kind of thing was hardly ever happening. Mm. Well, because, like, yeah, I mean, matches are now... I think compared to 1999, matches at Wimbledon are 25% longer. So that's obviously creating more. Problems. Well, that's because they. That half a reason for that is because they play on those the slowest grass courts, the slowest <laughs> grass anywhere in the world, and they have those absolute footballs that they play with that are knackered <laughs> after about three shots. Yeah. Like you know, it's the, I mean that in itself is ridiculous. Like why you know you've got to really ask the question. You know, we we keep talking about. I mean, it's, you know, everyone knows my opinion that I think Novak Djokovic is the best match player in any sport ever. Yeah. But then you've got to ask a question as to why a guy who plays like Novak Djokovic is probably going to win six Wimbledons in a row. And, yeah. you know, that's that's different from why Pete Sampras won five, where seven Wimbledons, or why Roger Federer won five in a row, or yeah. why Pete Sampras won seven Wimbledons. It, it's, you know, and I'd, I'd love to know what I was thinking earlier on. Bjorn Borg won five Wimbledons. Yeah. Right, I'd love to know how many we'd have won in a row playing with these balls, because <laughs> he he could have won twelve in a row playing with those balls. So I mean, I I have almost no comprehension of what sort of player Bjorn Borg was. Um, I'd say he was kind of a cross between Nadal and Djokovic, but okay. With, I mean, that doesn't with, sound like a grass court player. No, but he was basically the first player that hit with topspin. Right. So, the, but but you know, comparative with with um with the wooden rackets and what have you, mm. but he basically and he had a big serve. That was yeah. another thing he had. So, basically, had I guess kind of if you put Djokovic and Nadal with Medvedev's serve on, right. that would be um, Nadal's topspin, Djokovic's style of play, and Medvedev's serve, mm. and you know, but then they were playing with the balls that were like golf balls back yeah. then so yeah, imagine so what, what what it would have been like to play now and also um, on different on different grass i mean you know the grass changed in 03 i think it was yeah yeah and it, and it was uh, and basically i can't remember the particular breeds of grass but it doesn't matter but essentially the stuff before used to grow along the ground so the ball would skid off it and the grass they use now grows straight up so the ball effectively bounces up yeah i mean i'll say the courts are beautiful that you don't, you're now just getting. I mean, a lot of the players were saying there's basically no bad bounces on them now. Yeah, um, yeah. that they're beautifully laid courts. But I'd, it's it's not the grass or the ball. I, the balls that I have a major issue with. It's the two of them combined. Yeah. If you want the grass like that, play with a normal tennis ball. Right. Okay. <laughs> if, if you want to play with those balls, play on a normal grass court. Mm. Like it's it's <laughs> it's like trying to make it onto the slowest hard court ever, and then put in these balls on top of it. Yeah, it's it's just yeah. I mean, it's just silly, really. But uh, and that 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 point about matches getting longer was put to Sally Bolton, but by, by Mike Dixon, friend of the pod and um, uh, Daily Mail tennis correspondent, and very very you know experienced and knowledgeable. And she said, "Well, you're you're saying it's a negative trend. The matches are getting longer, and I don't know. I think the jury's out on that. I don't I don't think many people. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I think when I watch go back and watch tennis, you know from the 90s, when there was a lot of big serving on grass, everyone serving volley, short points. Like, it was exciting in its own way, but I don't find it as interesting. 
So I think there is an element to which the slightly slower game is more interesting to watch. But I don't think matches getting 25% longer is is an altogether good thing. On there was listen right there was there was two or three years where Wimbledon wasn't particularly interesting or the finals weren't particularly interesting right. because everything was too fast and you had this this sort of perfect storm of getting a load of huge big servers around at the same time. But then that and then on top of that, those guys who were doing that, they weren't particularly the most charismatic players mm. either. But it was no different when you had like when Boris Becker was coming through. Boris Becker was the, the hugest server we'd ever seen at the time. Mm. But he had a charisma about him. Yeah. He, was, he was hugely charismatic. Um the problem was that Samfras at the time was just miles better than everybody else. <laughs> and and he kept winning. But then, and, and he wasn't particularly charismatic, as brilliant as he was. Then Federer came along and kept winning, and everyone loved it. Yeah. So it, it was it was a combination of, you know, of all those things. I would say that the finals just weren't great. I mean, he, this whole thing came about. There was a final, I think it was the '93 final or the '94 when um, Courier played Sampras. That was '93, correct? Yeah, I've got it in front and, of me. Yeah, and I think that it was basically. Like the average rally length was like one point three or something <laughs> in, in the whole match, and it was. And neither of those guys were particularly charismatic or had any kind of personality. Yeah. And Samfras, that by that stage hadn't developed. That was his first Wimbledon title, so he right. hadn't he hadn't really developed a stigma yet. So it was just a, a rubbish final to watch. <laughs> and then we started all this thing of right, we need to change things. We need to get how are we going to make this slower? Yeah. And they've ended up just, you know, got this situation now where matches are going on for five and a half hours. Yeah. And we're I mean, starting, starting them at tea time. Iga Shrontek played a set today that was 75 minutes long. And all right, Iga Shrontek is not the big hitter I mean, today, Tuesday, yeah. Um, but nevertheless, that, that kind of tells you everything you need to know, I think. Yeah, yeah. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Anyway, um, let's move back to, to what was going on uh, on Monday. Uh, which I was going to try and pretend was today, but we've blown our cover on that. We're recording this on Tuesday, and we're filling in two days' worth of pods in one. So, um, sorry if there's some confusing day references. Um, just a couple of results that I'm just going to mention, and I don't need any more kind of discussion on. Onstjabur beating Petra Kvitova, 6-love, 6-3. Daniil Medvedev uh, beating Yuri Lehechka, who retired after two sets, sadly. And Arena Sabalenka beating Ekaterina Alexandrova six four six love. I think that last one is is worth just an extra sentence because Alexandrova's been playing really well on the grass this year, and Sabalenka absolutely mullered her, um, which I think is a bit of a, a message to maybe the rest of the draw um, that Sabalenka means business and doesn't look like collapsing. I mean, don't get me wrong. Arena Sabalenka is capable of collapsing at any given point, and I have seen her on several occasions produce these performances out of the blue, but she's certainly looking 
in pretty good nick going into the quarterfinals. Um, probably the match of the day. I mean, we thought the match today, Calvin, was going to be Alcaraz against Berrettini. Um, and Nick Kyrgios, in fact, had some uh, choice words to say about it, um, mostly about how good he is at talking about tennis, um, which was after Berrettini won the first set, he said, looks like my insight is credible. Alcaraz is the underdog in this match. And I think after he said that, Berrettini won about six more games. Um, I mean, Calvin, promising to see Alcaraz tested, you know, just, just to... Um, give us a little gut check, I guess. But seeing off Berrettini in, in relatively comfortable fashion, it, it's pretty impressive, really, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think... Did Nick have anything to say after that? <laughs> or was that his last tweet? Uh, there were some other tweets about Tiger Woods. Yeah, it's basically like bragging when... If Bolton go 1-0 up against Man City after 10 minutes, isn't it? Has that and ever then, happened? I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Um, In the bad old days. Yeah, and then not saying anything, just bragging about how you predicted it right and everything. Yeah, it's yeah, it's idiotic as he ever is to be fair. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it was you know he's just playing well, isn't he? He's Alcaraz. I'm just intrigued now how to have to um, to see how that if they make who does he play in the semi? Does he play Sinner or Medvedev? So obviously he's got Runa in the quarters. Oh, sorry, and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then he's um he's in the top half, so he's got Medvedev or Christopher Eubanks, who we will discuss in a minute, um in the in the semi. So, it, I mean, really, all of this, much as there's some exciting stuff going on, all of this is really once again just us waiting for Alcaraz versus Djokovic. I think, isn't it? Um, I'm interested to see that match with Runa, to be mm. honest. Um. I mean, the match the match yesterday with Dimitrov was a weird one. I mean, Dimitrov, for someone so experienced, is such a thick player, isn't he? <laughs> like he just has no sense of how to play a match at all. And you'd think, you know, you'd think it looked for a bit like he was just going to use his experience and nudge that one out. But he's so daft. I mean, it's one of the set points where he like he he challenged a ball that was like in the middle of a rally and just stopped the rally and challenged it and it was it was comfortably in like he's he's so daft um but do you think that's what really the thing cuz i was looking at the other day dimitrov has hit the fastest serve of the tournament again it's not the first time he's done that he's got a massive weapon in that serve do, do you think the thing that really has held him back in his career is 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 in between the ears well, it, no, it's also that he's powder puffy. It's all right. You know, he does things like that because he's got a very loose arm that he can hit huge serves. He can also hit huge ground strokes when he wants. But under pressure or when it when it comes to it, when it matters, he just plays so safe all mm. the time and doesn't, you know, he hardly ever hits a backhand. Like, he's just slicing everything and won't unload on a forehand. There were a couple of times yesterday when every, every time Rooney gets half a chance, he's slapping a winner. Every time, every time Dimitrov gets a half chance, he's rolling the ball in the middle, middle of the court. And it's interesting, really. And it, I mean, this is kind of it, I'm extrapolating from a small data point, but they say that women get less neurotic as they get older, and that men get more neurotic as they get older. And I'm just struck by the the contrast there between what you're saying about Dimitrov, where compared to Runa, he he doesn't have that you know pulling of the trigger. Whereas, like, you watch Alina Svitolina, uh, and we'll come on to her in a minute as well, because she comes on the Tuesday's podcast, 
Um, and she's the complete opposite. Like she, she, and she said as much afterwards. And she said, "I'm older now. I've got less time left. I, I just have to go for it. I can't mess around." And I kind of think about Andy Murray as well. And like, okay, he's always been like that. He's never been someone who really pulls the trigger. But as it, it hit, that age has not given him that sort of gallows freedom. It, it's strange the way I don't know the, these players seem to not be finding freedom in their old age. Um. Yeah, it is. Um, but I think in Murray's case, it's just always, yeah. It, I think Murray's a bit different in that he convinces himself. I don't think that it's that he gets tight or it's anything to do with anxiety. Mm. He just convinces himself that, that these are the ways, this is the way to play. And that's, yeah. you, you know, whereas Dimitrov just, I do think he bottles it. I don't think he's got a great nerve, if I'm honest. Oh, I remember sitting watching... It was ATP World Tour Finals. Um, funnily enough, it was the year he won it, actually. But he won it in spite of himself because George and I would sit there and just call double faults. And basically, the, the way to pick up on his double fault was that if there was any sort of delay between first and second serve, you know, like Ball Boy doesn't quite pick it up cleanly because he's hit it in the net or you know, there's a grunt in the crowd or he doesn't quite bounce the ball right... Any kind of delay, second serve miss, like every single time, and it, it, you know, that to me just stinks of bottle. Like, and, and speaking of bottle, actually, and maybe it's not an age thing by this logic. Um, can we talk about the fact that Hubert Hercatch basically bottled at least three sets against Novak Djokovic? Yeah, I'll just—I was just looking for it on my computer there, James. There was a quote about people about nerves and older. I've just found it now from um, Sean Payton, who was the head coach of the. New Orleans, New Orleans Saints. Saints when they played the Super Bowl final. Against the um, Colts, yeah. Yeah. Was it the Colts? I think yeah, it was, yeah, I yeah, it was, it was against... against I thought it was against Brett Favre's team. Uh well, no. Uh well he may have coached against Brett Favre in the Super Bowl, but the one I remember is the uh after Katrina they played the Colts. Okay. And he was talking about um uh, yeah, I'll give you the quote and it was about that it's about when the the speech he gave to his players. Um, before they played against Brett, Brett Favre's, um, what, uh, I think it was Minnesota Vikings, wasn't he? Um, oh, I see, okay, yeah. Um, and he said, when you get older in life, you tend to get very careful and a little more fearful. Um, you start thinking about your own mortality. If it rains outside, you might not go to the store, especially at night. You figure, it, you figure you'll just wait it out. You might have somewhere to go and you tell yourself, I don't want to go there. You, want to, you don't want to get in a wreck. If you keep hitting him, he'll make a mistake. If we keep putting pressure on him, he'll start being careful. He'll start doing anything he can to avoid getting hit and making a mistake. I promise you, if we wait for him, he'll turn into that old man who's scared of the rain. <laughs> and I, I, I do think that's kind of relevant to some of those guys. Yeah. I don't think Hubert Hercatch is scared of the rain. I think he's scared of everything. Um, that, he seems to be like the classic, like, just big guy who kind of, you know shrieks at, at mice and uh, are you 6-3 up in the breaker and alright I know Novak Djokovic is the king of tie breaks but he was there on a plate 6-3 easy forehand and the guy just I I think Hubert Hercatch is, is a nice enough chap he's a bit odd um, he's a bit of an introvert but that's allowed that's fine but bloody hell mate like just you could have beaten Novak Djokovic at Wimbledon like very few people have ever done that and he just choked it on multiple occasions. Yeah, um, I think he's probably destined to be a bit like that. 
you know, I think he's like a lot of these guys have windows when they can move up to the next stage. Yeah. And I think Hercatch looked like he was going to do that 18 months ago. Mm. And it probably looks like the window's gone, doesn't it? Yeah. Because, yeah, he's got the pieces, you know, he's got really good backhand, he's got an absolutely enormous serve. I mean, I think it was in the, the third set, the set he won, he lost three points on serve, like, yeah. against one of the greatest returners of all time. Like, that. that's that's blooming elite. But if it's not there between the ears, he's just going to have a, a Grigor Dimitrov of a career. Uh, yeah. if, that's, if that's not too much of an insult, which I think it might be, but uh, yeah. anyway. Um, the other result we should talk about from Monday, and because we're doing this on Tuesday, I can do it with a bit of context. Uh, Madison Keys ended Mira Andreva's great run. I mean, talking of bottling it, I mean, I don't like to accuse a 16-year-old of bottling it, but she was 6-3 and a breakup, um, and she lost 3-6, 7-6, 6-2 to Madison Keys. Uh, she... On she when she dropped the second set, she hurled her racket from the back of number two court at her racket bag, and was promptly given an unsportsmanlike conduct warning and a four thousand dollar fine. We now know, and then when serving at two five in the third set, forty thirty. I know juice. It must have been. She well, I don't know, Calvin. Have you seen the clip? She she slid across. She sort of slipped, her arms and hair went everywhere, the racket flew out of her hand, and that was deemed another piece of unsportsmanlike conduct, throwing her racket into the grass. And she was given a point penalty to bring up match point, and, and then that was that. Was that. I mean, what do you think? Deli- deliberate act, act of racket throw or not? No, it wasn't. Definitely not wasn't. Like, it's just ridiculous from the umpire. Like, just the umpire trying to, make, trying to really make a point, mm. really make it about themselves again. Yeah. Um, I can't remember whether it's a man or a woman actually who did it. I, it was a, I think it was a female lump off Tom head, but I can't remember yeah, who it was. Yeah, just you know, have some, you know, just read the room. Yeah, like it's it's just ridiculous. Some of the, you know, some of these officials they just they do my head in. But <laughs> you know, just just the 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 want to import impart the rules. The rules are there to facilitate the game. It's not the other way around. Yeah, and I think we should remember that in sport, which we it's kind of ruining football that we haven't remembered that in football. Yeah. Um. And I, we don't want it to get to that stage in tennis. And I don't, you know, I think what you've got to ask there is, if the umpire hadn't have done that, would Madison Keys have been livid that she should have had a point penalty there? Yeah. And I don't and think I, Madison Keys would have remotely noticed or even thought about that in that. No, situation. I mean she she said, oh, I, we asked her afterwards. She said, oh, I didn't even notice it, so I don't really know. Um. So yeah, I don't think so. And it it, it it's interesting actually because I bumped into Renee Stubbs. Uh, who's never short of an opinion, and she she said it was ridiculous. Like, of course, it wasn't a racket throw. It's absurd. But then there are people like who are absolutely determined that it was deliberate, and she absolutely deserved it for the most part, as far as I can tell. The tennis people, like people like yourself, people like Renee Stubbs, the players, generally think it wasn't a deliberate act, and it really was just you know. But but I don't know. Anyway, she's been fined eight thousand dollars for the, her troubles. Uh, although, given that she picked up like three hundred thousand dollars in prize money, it's not it's not a huge problem for her. But uh, yeah, it's it's more a kind of look. I mean, Mira Andreva, she's clearly got a bit about her, Calvin. Like, a a uh, she can play. I mean, she can clearly really play. Uh, she's got the passion. Uh, it's sometimes restrained, sometimes not. I mean, do you look at her and think that that is a Grand Slam winner? Um, yeah, I think she'll end up winning a Slam. If I'm honest. If I had to push you for a number of total slams, 
<laughs> I'm not sure I'm going on that because I said I thought Coco Goff would win more than 10. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think she's probably, she'll win multiple slams. I mean, I, the, the question to ask is how many of the Andreva's, Andreva family will win. Her, <laughs> yeah. her, her sister's pretty pretty good as well. Erica, the older one, yeah. I think it's um, Erica, yeah. I mean, it, what's amazing is, like, she's 16 years old, as multiply discussed, and she comes into a press room. They initially put her in room two, so just a little bit of behind the scenes, there are multiple interview rooms at Wimbledon. There's the main sort of interview theatre where the big press conference happened, then there's room two, which has probably only got about 15 seats for journalists, and then there are a few small ones that you do for, like, individual interviews. And often with, like, young players, they'll put them into room two to make it a bit less intimidating, you know, because the media theatre, there are, like, 200 seats in there. Like, it's it's big. Um, and so initially up on the screen said, oh, Mira Andre will be in room two. And then they realise, well, hang on. Like, she's she's the story of the day. She's one of the... She's already one of the most exciting players in women's tennis. We're going to have to put her in there. And, like, she didn't care. Like, she she just lost the match... Like, she'd had a point penalty to make it match point. She was clearly fuming about it because she had an argument with the umpire. And she walked in and just, you know, she was like, yeah, whatever, not a big deal. And and it's not just that she's not bothered, you know, in the way that I always think Emma Raducanu looks very unbothered by these, this, these big stages for speaking on. It's not just that she's a really engaging speaker. Like, and I don't know any 16-year-old girls apart from Coco Goff who are engaging speakers. Yeah, she just she just seems to carry herself. As George pointed out, I texted him saying how level-headed she was seconds before she then started beating her own thigh on the court and then about an hour before she chucked a racket twice. So level-headed might not be the right word, but she's certainly got a bit about her and I'm really looking forward to uh, to what what she's going to she's going to do in the next couple of years. No, I um, think she is level-headed like, you know, you can't just let that, you know, you can't let that, you know, a couple of things like beating her own thigh. I mean, who doesn't do that? <laughs> Level-headed doesn't mean that you never, you know, you n- never get frustrated. Mm. She didn't, like, like, the thing was yesterday, she didn't lose the match because of that. No. You, no. you know, it's like, she, I think she, she was doing that because she knew that the match was slipping away. Yeah. It wasn't, she was she didn't lose her head. And, and you, you can't go, she's lost her head there. She had the match in her hand and she lost her head. Madison Key just started playing a lot better. Yeah, that was the yeah. pro- that was the the determining factor in that match. Yeah, um, and if you had a number two court ticket on Monday, you were a very lucky person indeed because it was immediately followed by Christopher Eubanks versus Ste- uh, Stefan Sitsipas. Uh, the completion thereof, I think that was held over off the top of my head. Either way, who cares? Um, because Christopher Eubanks won three six seven six three six six four six four. Um, People probably, well, I, mean, I know that the Hardy tennis fans among our listeners will have heard of Christopher Eubanks before. Uh, for people who haven't, he's 27 years old. He is six foot seven. He's one of the most sinewed men I've ever seen. Like, you can see every single fibre of muscle in his calves. Um, the clothes hang off him because he's so sort of skinny. He went to Georgia Tech University. He's been, quite frankly, grinding away at sort of, you know, 120 in the world, desperately trying to break top 100. He did so earlier this year. He then turned up on the grass, hated it, texted Kim Kleister for some advice because he played some team tennis with her. She said, you know, gave him some tips on moving and, you know, how how he would get used to it. And and then he went and won the title of Mallorca and, and now he's in the quarterfinals of, 
of Wimbledon. I mean, Calvin, I don't, I don't know how much you know Chris Eubanks, but I mean, not he can play, he can talk. Like the guy looks like a superstar. Yeah, he's a he's a great guy. I don't know him personally all that well. I have spoken to him uh, on a couple of occasions this summer. Actually, I've been in conversations with him uh, with other people, and he, he's you know he's just very relaxed. Very relaxed, really good company, real student of the game, really loves learning about the conversations I've had with him was when he was just asking questions about players from the 90s and 80s, which, as you can imagine, was my wheelhouse. Um, (laughs) um, Surprisingly, we spoke about John McEnroe and Andre Agassi. (laughs) Of Um, course. Yeah. Um, But yeah, just just like just a real I I really hope we see more of him Mm. at the back end of the big tournaments because he's just a you know he's exciting to watch and he's also i mean yesterday some of the shots he played yesterday was I, I, he played the way that it astonishes me that so many of the guys who are lower in that sort of ranking of you know 20 to 25 to 60 when they play the top guys that they don't play basically he's come out and thought right if i come out and just try and play my bog standard game here i won't win because he's a better tennis player than i am so what I'm going to do is any half chance I'm swinging. Yeah. And that's how he played. And some of the shots he hit, he hit some shots that missed by an absolute mile. <laughs> but he hit a shot to break. I don't know whether it was in the the fourth set or the fifth set. And he hit a backhand line where it was a half chance and he absolutely leathered it. Mm. And it was a clean winner. Um, and, you know, he, I think, yeah, like I say, he played like, right, I, I'm going to... If I... I'm going to have to play the best tennis I've ever played here, but if I play the best tennis I've ever played, I will win. Mm. And that's how he played. Something interesting about Christopher Eubanks as well is that he's actually a very good commentator. He works on the... um, Tennis channel, yeah. um, He works on the tennis channel, and apparently that was because last year he got in touch with his agent and said, look, I think we we should start looking at other options here because the tennis isn't going as well as I'd hoped. Mm. And that's why he started doing the commentary, um, and it's now going as he'd hoped. Any chance he beats Daniil Medvedev in the quarterfinals? Oh, I think yeah. I mean, I'd I'd, I'd make Medvedev a slight favourite, I think, mm. but only slight. Yeah, I think um, I'd make him fifty-five, forty-five favourite. I think. Where's George when you need to do some dodgy percentage maths, eh? Well, George um, would have him 58, <laughs> 72 underdog. <laughs> um, i tell you what else is really interesting that Christopher Eubanks has alerted me to, which I, I, feel, I kind of feel like an idiot for not knowing about, but Calvin, have you heard of the Last Eight Club? I mean, I didn't know. I'd heard of it. I didn't know. It seems to be now referred to as more of a, uh, a thing than I've ever heard of it before. So, basically, for people who don't know, this was instituted in the 80s. And basically, if you make the quarterfinals of the singles or the semifinals of the men's and women's doubles or the final of the mixed, you get membership, lifetime membership, to this thing called the Last Eight Club. And it means you get two credentials for the whole championships for the rest of your life, which Eubanks, it was literally the first thing he mentioned in his press conference. He was like, I'm in the Last Eight Club now. I can come back every year. Um, you also get there's a little um, private suite um, next to Gate Five where you can go and hang out, and there's tea and coffee, and you can get food and, and whatever. They have a dinner uh, on the Monday, the middle Monday night. You get a couple of West End tickets, incredibly, to go to the theatre. Um, and yeah, is that every year? Every year, yeah, you get. Right, okay. <laughs> it's amazing, really. 
Yeah, even more reason to get into the uh, into the semis of the doubles, Calvin, because that's, that's is, that, the... is that what it is as well? Semis of the doubles. Semis of the doubles, quarters of the singles, or final of the mi- final of the mixed. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. I wonder if um, I wonder if they revoked John McEnroe's last eight club membership when they revoked his <laughs> membership of the actual club. Because um, I don't know question? whether everybody knows he's the only winner of Wimbledon not to be a member of Wimbledon because he had his membership revoked. I didn't know that actually. That's... Yeah, when he got, I'm pretty sure it was when he got um, he got disqualified from he got defaulted from the Australian Open, right? And Wimbledon sent him a letter. Saying he was, um, he was. They were removing his membership, revoking his membership because of that, and they asked him to return his club tie, <clears> as well. And they said if if he if he couldn't return it, they were asking him politely to never wear it. <laughs> and that just exemplifies what a ridiculous club the All England Club is, doesn't it? Uh, yes, quite. Um, but anyway, Christopher Eubanks is now in the last eight club. You can't take that away from him. Um, I, I was I wrote a piece about it for the Eye, so you can read it. In the there newspaper. must be loads of them, though. So there are six hundred and seventy-nine members of the last oh. eight club. Last year, about two hundred and two hundred and nineteen of them turned up last year. Okay. Um, there's obviously my my information is. <laughs> I said to someone, I haven't put this in the piece because I didn't think it was printable, but I asked someone who's been to a few of the dinners on the Monday night, because I, I just had no real idea like what the type of people who turn up to this are. I said, oh, you know, what's it like? Is it quite, you know, is it... Because you imagine dinner full of vexed tennis players, pretty rowdy, bit boozy, the rest of it. And um, the the person I spoke to said, no, 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 it was pretty pretty chilled out actually lots of like light entertainment they weren't exactly shagging hookers and doing coke in the toilets <laughs> was the exact phrase so i think it's uh, a bit more blue rinse brigade than um than anything else uh but yeah it did it did make me laugh but i mean what a cool little thing i mean okay it's classical england club because it's weird exceptionalism but you know jewel niemeyer the german who made the quarters last year She's obviously now in the last eight club, and her coach was also in the last eight club because he made Christopher Case is his name K A S. He made doubles semis in twenty eleven, and um, he was like, "This is our main goal was to make the last eight because now we've got double as many tickets." <laughs> it's just right. like, well, they need it's... them now because they've taken all the they've taken all the players' um, allocations off them. So well, exactly, yeah. Um, Anyway, slight distraction there, the last eight club. That was Monday. What I'm going to do is pretend that we're going to record a second podcast. What I'm actually going to do is hit cut here, and you can then go download the next podcast to catch up on Tuesday. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Podcast Network.